Welcome to session 49 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started this series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 18th of February. Today we'll be looking at Numbers 28 to 30 and at Psalm 49. So far in Numbers, we've read as the Israelites made their final preparations to leave Sinai. We read of the journey to the Promised Land, how they stopped in the wilderness of Paran, where the people rebel and decide not to enter the land, the journey back into the wilderness as we waited for the old generation to pass, and then them settling in the plains of Moab. We read through all the preparations and new instructions that seem like random rules, but were actually a retelling of Genesis 1 to 9. Israel was to be like a new creation, learning from the mistakes of the first time around. We then read as Israel set off, established and ordered by God, only to immediately complain. Then Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own brother and sister, challenged whether Moses was really hearing from God. After that, the Israelites arrived in the wilderness of Paran, just outside Canaan. Moses sent 12 spies to check out the land, and 10 of the 12 complained that the land was filled with the descendants of the Nephilim, and that they had no chance. God then tells them that none of this generation will enter the Promised Land. This was followed by the Levites rebelling under Korah. And so we read of how the people set back off into the wilderness to continue to be tested by God until the old generation passed. The people complained, and Moses this time rebelled a little, losing his spot in the promised land. They fought some battles, complained some more, and more of the old generation died. In winning some battles, the Israelites also claimed some land. We read as they settled in the plains of Moab. There they were seen by Balak, the king of Moab, who hired a foreign sorcerer, Balaam, to curse Israel. But God wouldn't let Balaam curse Israel. Instead, Balaam blessed Israel three times and then cursed all their enemies. Then yesterday we settled into the final section of Numbers as the new generation are prepared to enter the land. Phineas proved himself a worthy successor to Aaron and Joshua was chosen to replace Moses when the time comes. Which leads us then to today's reading, Numbers 28 to 30. As the new generation of Israel are about to step into the land promised to them, God reminds them of the importance of offerings. These offerings were the primary way that your average person would develop a relationship with God. Remember, these people don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And so the only way to have a personal relationship with God at this time was to participate in offerings. Note how often that seven or multiples of seven, such as 14, appear during the offerings. These offerings also bring order and structure to the Israelites' lives. We get instructions for daily, weekly, monthly and annual offerings. These offerings are all much more communal than what we've seen before. In Leviticus, the focus was largely on the individual sacrifices and offerings one would make to affirm their personal relationship with God. Here we get the offerings and sacrifices required of the community. The other time we've seen the feast laid out like this was Leviticus 23. There, there was a big focus on the theological significance of these festivals. Here in Numbers, the focus is practicality. How are these offerings brought and then offered? Most notable is the Feast of Booths. This feast spread out across seven days, and here in Numbers we get a set of instructions for each day. The hope here is if we can ground the new generation in regular spiritual and religious practices that turn them afresh to God, then they will remain faithful where their parents had been rebellious. A branch off from offerings was the vows. The fact that men seem to make decisions for women in this section can seem incredibly offensive to our modern thinking. As always, we have to remember this is part of a culture where men predominantly had authority and a vow was a binding commitment. This wasn't a culture that even had a concept of personal rights. Everyone had responsibility to their community and to their family. Everyone had a role to play and duties to fulfil. This is what kept the community tightly knit together. 
Because of this, it would have been wrong to take a vow that conflicted with one's existing duties and responsibilities. I'm not saying this is how it should be now. I'm just saying this is how the wisdom of the Torah played out within the context of their existing culture. But that's Numbers 28 to 30. Now let's look at Psalm 49. This psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah and falls into the category of wisdom psalm. It's specifically focused on the topic of death in the face of human power and wealth. Here is a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. So we have verses 1 to 4, the introduction. Verses 5 to 12, do not fear the wealthy, for they will one day die. Verses 13 to 15, the foolish trust in their wealth and die, but the wise trust in God and are redeemed. And verses 16 to 20, do not fear the wealthy, for they will one day die. The psalm opens with a call from the psalmist to listen as they share wisdom. This wisdom is for all people, no matter where you live or whether you're rich or poor. They then pose a question, why should you fear in the face of death or in the face of powerful and wealthy enemies? These enemies might trust in their wealth and boast in their riches, but what good will it do them? All the riches in the world won't save a man's life. Eventually everyone dies and that wealth will go to someone else. Though they may live in nice houses now, one day they will live in the ground. The unspoken point here is that all people are equal. The enemies that you face are no better than you because of their wealth and their power. They will one day face the same fate as everyone else. The psalmist then turns to the foolishness of putting your trust in your wealth. They walk around with confidence, seemingly unaware that each day they come closer to death. In contrast are those who put their trust in God, for they will have their souls redeemed, for even death loses its threat over them. And so the psalmist returns to their encouragement. Do not fear those who are wealthy or powerful. That wealth and power will mean nothing when they die. They have missed the point of life and end up no better than animals. The psalm reminds us of the wise way to think of wealth and power. While it has value, it's not something to put our trust in. Instead, put your trust in God.